0: Hi, this is Jonathan Miller, and welcome back to the Housing Helix. Please enjoy part two of my conversation with Barry Ritholtz.
1: I own a house. We have a vacation property. I'm talking against my book. People always say you're really talking your book. No, I'm not short housing. I'm long housing. Right. And i I just put a ton of money into our current house. We added another bedroom. We took um, ever since we built a deck off the kitchen. There was a covered open porch in the back right. that was never used. We bluestoned it. We screened it in. Um, I redid my driveway. This, By the way, this is all started because we had a leak in the garage. <laughs> there was a leak in the garage. And we start looking at the, the roof. And you know what? The roof is a million years old. Let's replace the roof. As right. long as we're doing the roof and therefore the gutters and leaders – Hey, why don't we do the siding? Okay, so we're taking this old yellow siding. It's called siding, the joys of homeownership. Right, and then you know what? As long as we're doing the siding, that part of the house is brick, why don't we take that old brick and cover it with nice stacked stone? It's pr- And then, you know, in the front, so we have a house that we're the only house. In, of this design in the neighborhood that has a covered right. walkway. Hey, what would be nice are those sort of ACES columns where right. the stone's on the bottom and you have the columns going. And, and by the way, this isn't a giant house. This is like a nice— Well, you're
0: investing—you're you, providing gainful employee employment I'm, to contractors, You know,
1: right? I, I said—I swear I said this to my wife the other day. We're coming back from somewhere— and I said, you know, I can't believe this economy isn't recovering based on just our stimulus <laughs> alone. This should be a 3.5% GDP as far as I'm concerned. So at least it it's, feels that way. <laughs> it, 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 sometimes, um, it sometimes feels that way. So uh, when you look at and, – and by the way, part of the reason I was willing to put the money into the house is we're not going anywhere anytime soon. Right. I don't feel, hey, I got to go buy that $5 million right. waterfront house. Because if I don't get that now, hey, in a few years, it's going to be $10 million. Right. Even though I know that end of the market is doing better than most, yes. it's not running away from me. However right. much that goes up, my house is going up. Comparably, and so, and when I decide to do that trade, well, I think
0: that's a big, a, a big viewpoint now, a big change in viewpoint now compared to say the middle of last decade during the boom. Sure, was there was this uh, sentiment that if I don't act now, there was a sense of urgency. Absolutely, that uh, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss out on the on the the express train, and and. I don't feel like that's the case now. Even, Clearly not. Even with inventory being tight in many housing, in most housing markets, because of this, what I believe this lower negative equity phenomenon, you're still not people. You're not seeing people be stupid uh, in in the degree. Uh, you know, I, I was certainly everybody was caught up in it. I don't think you're seeing that same degree. But I think that if this progresses much longer, where we have low rates, we have very tight inventory. In terms of existing properties, at least in metro areas that I'm familiar with, um, I'm worried that we're going to get stupid again as a, as a market. Stupid, and not in a condescending way, but sort of that you know we're we're worried about being left out. And maybe the the difference now is employment is unemployment is so much higher than it was during the that's boom. That's
1: right. That that's part of it. The lack of a down payment and and clearly the tighter lending rules. Yes, we went from one extreme where if you could fog a mirror, you could get a million dollars or had a pulse mortgage. Um, <laughs> to gee, you're qualified, you have a job and a decent right. credit rating. Not good enough. Right. I mean, it's it swung the pendulum as well. Yeah, swung it's become completely irrational. Completely. Well, actually, I
0: contend right now with everything in play, even with elevated unemployment, that we'd be in the middle of a housing boom right now, even if we didn't have. The underwriting standards of the middle of the decade, we had a—you a, maybe historically a more um, balanced, only right. because you know the affordability factor, like uh, you were talking about, you know. Uh, but
1: that's an if then. If, oh yeah, have, if then, right? If, if but if, for that obviously rates would, would be high. Exactly right. Race I'm, I'm just then.
0: saying, if you if you flip the switch, you know the condition, and, and that's why everybody's looking and say, why are we booming? What's going on? And that's not factored into affordability is the right. underwriting constraints. And, and
1: by the way, I took the NAR's Home Affordability Index I a few thing. years ago and said, what is this actually based on? And a lot of key things are left out of it. It's really just a function of relative price and interest rates, not employment, not the ability of a family to put a down payment on credit rating. So so it turned out that it's a math whole, calculation. Right, during the entire boom from 2001 to 2006 or 7, there was one month where the NAR said homes were not affordable. One month. Right. Here uh, now the market dropped 35% later l- lower and in some areas 50 55 60%, but that was they didn't see anything unaffordable anywhere. It's really a useless metric and uh, the piece i wrote some time ago was it doesn't matter if homes are affordable right it matters if american families can afford to buy homes right right homes aren't so much sold as down payment is put on uh mortgages qualified for and 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 actually paid and so that's a really significant difference you have to look at right Um, from the right, right can they afford to
0: buy or are they affordable? Right, homes because are affordable. One, because one is out of context and one isn't. That's you know, exactly right. That, right. That's, that's the whole. Exactly right. I think that's actually... Which, by the way, is why
1: homes are affordable if you're a wealthy Argentinian or, or, or right. someone from China. Or you have or an 800 credit score
0: and your, your job is uh, yeah. firm and you've got a raise and, and all that. Right? That's right.
1: Hey, listen, if you're a software engineer, if you're writing algos for hedge funds... You have your choice of mortgages. You have your choice of houses. Uh, It's good to be in the top 1%. There's no doubt about that. But I'm looking at the whole macro perspective. I'm looking at the entire market and saying this is a gummed up market. The data that's coming out is really misleading for the obvious reasons. out of context. And I think over the next six months, six to 12 months, you'll see the usual idiots talk about, oh, this is a double dip. No, no, it's not a double dip. This data was aberrational for the reasons we've discussed. Right. And and I expect sometime, maybe towards the end of this year, beginning of next year, foreclosures tick up, distress. Sales right. And you'll see up. the mix shift. And the to price lower will price. start to drop again. Right. And that'll take. Well, that,
0: that's why you call your blog the Big Picture, because that's the big picture take. That's I w- right. I wanted to switch gears real quick and talk about uh, your conference. uh uh-huh. And. Uh, I the reason why I was particularly interested in it, which it's October tenth in New York. Yep. Um, it's on your webs. You 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 have links on your website. The big picture, which is ritholtz dot com. Uh, one of the, uh, the the speakers you've got at the top of the list is Neil Borovsky and fascinating I, guy. I just read his book Bailout, and uh, he's a flamethrower. And if you ever had any doubts or wondering. Um, how Geithner fits in because I read Too Big to Fail which was sort of a very, very uh, sort of pro-Geithner you know, love fest and then this is the the opposite dynamic because the orientation in the book gives you sort of black and white nuts and bolts on the bias towards big banks versus the consumer and and it That's was right. and that was that was fascinating too, too Big to Fail or
1: as some people have called it Too Big to Read <laughs> was really a yeoman's work putting together all these interviews with all these people. However, you know, the way that kind of worked is you you don't get that sort of access to it. Right. Deal. To have
0: access, you have to be sort of nice. Uh, I, right. Maybe so, it's So unspoken. there's no objectivity. There's right. There's no... Because it's, well, I liked reading it, but I felt... He's
1: a very talented
0: he's very, It was very author. easy. It there's was a no good read, but, it, it. but I felt it was a little too... Uh,
1: way easy on Diamond. Way easy on Geithner. Right. Um, th- there's a little bit of access journalism. By the way, the movie is great. It's a great cast. I, I, I didn't see it, it on H B I I yeah. started reading "Too Big to Fail" and it's like twelve thousand pages. Yeah, it's I huge. Just, uh, I have so many other books in my queue. I'm like, uh, you know, I I wrote this book. I don't need right. to read <laughs> twelve hundred pages of it. But what I read was interesting, and I, you know, I think it started out with somebody jogging around. And it was Geithner, and he, what he's thinking to himself, and it's like, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? So it's uh, you know, it's that sort it was of a dark and in. stormy night. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie has a fantastic cast; everybody in it is great, and it really does uh, does tell the story. I mean, there's a line because it's HBO; they can right. say what they want. There's a line in it where they're negotiating, trying to save Lehman, and one of the lawyers pulls aside. Paulson and basically says, Are "You guys aware of what's about to happen with AIG? No. What, what's going to happen with AIG? And he has to right. send. They have to pull someone out of a Lehman negotiation to AIG, who's about to hit the fan. And I, I think it was Stanley Tucci was the character oh, yeah. sure. who turns around and just says, "These guys have no fucking clue what they're doing. And it, it's just such a slap upside your head. It's like, wow, wow. you know, you really at this the, scale, the the right at that level, and it's it's just." If you don't want to kill, you know, the six months it takes to read the book, I would tell you, <laughs> go to HBO On Demand. It, it, give Sorkin, uh, Sorkin credit. It's a really well-told story. Right. If he's a little soft on Geithner and others, in the book, the way the director tells the narrative
0: in, in the movie... It doesn't come across soft.
1: It's not... It's a little soft, but, uh, you know, the it, it's a little it's well more done. balanced. The... the and I can't say enough about the, the, the cast is just awesome. Sure, sure. It's just great.
0: Well, you've also you've got a, no, a, a lot of other notables. Uh, oh, sure. Dylan Grice, um, David Dylan Grice
1: Rosen- is really well known in Europe. He's really well known on, uh, amongst the institutional world. He's the economist and strategist for Societe Generale, one of the biggest yes. banks in Europe. Um, David Rosenberg was Merrill Lynch's right. chief economist. Everybody loves Dave oh, Dave's great. Everybody love loves Dave. Rosie. He tells stories, speaking of which, like I keep telling him, Dave, you gotta write a book. You gotta right. write a book. He we go to dinner and with a group of people and he'll tell stories about getting called into Stan O'Neill's office. Right. Like, what are you writing this crap about in 05? Right. You can't write this shit about mortgages. I got securitized product to sell. You can't say housing is gonna fall off. Of- like he tells these stories. Right they 're just astonishing and and, it's and, like,
0: and, and you know that 's why I always picked him out because he seemed to be very contrarian to the status quo really good at messaging that was delivered out not
1: the usual Wall Street blah 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 right. he's now actually back home in Canada right at at, his, at a smaller shop when he left Maryland. He actually left because he had some family issues he had to deal with at home, but really well regarded economist, yep. regarded as a perma bear, although i'll tell you he's been pretty bullish on bonds and bullish on. Um, gold and other things and has done a nice job with that.
0: Yeah, and then you've got uh, James Bianco, which I see him uh, on your... um, I've seen... I see a lot of... Bloomberg, CNBC, he's on the blog pretty regularly. Yeah,
1: Bianco was probably the highlight of last year's conference. He just crushed it. Right. I give Jim credit. When a lot of people were flailing about trying to figure out what QE was going to do, he's really the first guy who came out and says... This is a liquidity fire hose. This is going to drive interest rates lower and stock prices higher. And that was, you know, sometime in in '09 or '10, and he was dead right. Dead right. A lot of people back then were flailing. Oh, the Fed's killing the dollar. Right. He says, put all that nonsense aside and look at what this does. Right. Bonds are going higher, yields are going lower, and that means equity prices are going higher. And he's been just dead, dead on. on. Fascinating. You know, it's so funny. We're both New Yorkers. You talk really right. fast. People right. from the Midwest, really nice, easygoing guy. <laughs> you expect him to be this sort of slow-speaking guy. And right. then he gets up in front of the room, and it's like
0: Energy. 45
1: minutes. Bam, 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 It's so much information, so much detail in 45 minutes. Just He really wowed the crowd last year.
0: He was really, really, really good. And then you got uh, Michael Belkin, who so, I'm not familiar with. So
1: Belkin was a guy who was at Salomon Brothers back in their heyday. Oh, yeah.
0: And then he left
1: to go to Washington State. He lives in some island off in in Puget Sound and writes a really highly regarded um, newsletter. It's really for institutions, high – big big pension shops, big hedge funds, really well-regarded stuff, a bit of a quant but capable of speaking in English, um, not just talking (laughs) math. Um, He's the sort of guy – also, terrific track right. record uh, for the past five years. He's probably been too bearish the past month or two relative right. to what the equity markets have done. But his sector calls, his stock calls, uh, he's just. Uh, and by the way, his product is something like sixty thousand dollars a year. Wow! It's not a like oh, let me right. give you a twelve four ninety five and get right. you. This is if if you're subscribing to him, you're a, a big. You're running billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars. Right. His stuff is just really, really fascinating. I love seeing it.
0: Yeah, and you've got uh, James O'Shaughnessy. Uh... Everybody who works on Wall Street should have
1: read a book some point in their career called What Works on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I-, I first read it, I don't know, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe it's 10, 20 years, something like that. It's in its sixth or eighth printing. It's this giant thing. You, you always hear these rules when you're a trader, when you're an investor— you know, sell in May then go away. All, all these crazy right. rhyming things. He's a guy who said, "Let's not just take these poetry at face value. Let's crunch the numbers and see what happens." And basically looked at what matters, what works on Wall Street. Does PE matter? Does trend matter? Does this, and the the stuff he put together, it's awesome. It's just a really solid sort of uh, approach. The book just, you know, it's almost become a textbook in in business schools. Just a real, I, I think he's out of Boston now. He was with Bear Stearns for a while. Mm-hmm. They wanted him to run some of their asset management, and then he went out on his own. It's now uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Super, super nice guy, crazy smart, and you know, I love people who just don't accept the myth. conventional wisdom. Right. It's like, well, let's see if this works. Right. You know what it is it's moneyball for for the stock market. It okay. sounds backwards cuz moneyball was the stock market for baseball, right. but you would think with hundreds of you know billions and billions trillions of dollars at risk, people would know, hey, does this work or are we just committing a billion dollars on a lot? Right. And astonishingly, most people don't do that sort of heavy lifting or or at least read about the heavy lift. This is a guy who's actually crunched numbers and, and, and can tell you Here's what works, here's what doesn't. And makes for
0: fascinating reading. And you've got a, a Bloomberg senior economist, Richard Yamarone. Sure, Yammeron. Richard
1: Yamarone. I'm going to have Yamarone just do an interview with Dylan Grice. Let the two of them chat. Yamarone's really well regarded. Guy puts out the Bloomberg brief every day for yes. Bloomberg. Um, just really interesting guy, very savvy, fun sort of character. You don't really think of economist and fun in the same <laughs> sentence, but he is funny guy, and um, he'll he'll do a... You know, 45 Minutes with Dylan Grice.
0: And then you've got Bill Girton.
1: So Bill Girton is, you know, Wall Street is filled with these fascinating stories that people don't know about. So Girton is out of California. He runs about 25 or $35 billion in municipal bonds, which, by the way, for municipal bonds, that's not considered big. You know, you look <laughs> at PIMCO. is $2 trillion. Right. So uh, this is, but he's one of these guys who figured out early on, That the rating agencies don't know what they're doing. The bond ratings are clueless. And what has happened, if you think about it, for municipal bonds, you had these muni bond insurance companies. And then you had the rating agencies. And so you had this, uh, my colleague Josh Brown calls it institutional sloth. Hey, this is AAA rated. It's insured. What could go wrong? Right. right. You know, how'd that work it out with the subprime <laughs> stuff? But they figured out that the entire bond industry, more or less, is clueless. Right. And so they built their own bond research department and they're evaluating bonds. And they're basically, you know, there's an index and most bond managers try and match their index. They came up with the idea of, you know, we could look at the index and using our own skill set. Throw out the crap that we don't want. Right. And so we'll get index or better performance with actually less risk. <clears throat> Incredibly simple, right? Right. Fantastic business built on it. Almost accidental. I think he began as a bond analyst. And they teach you all this cra- – there's all this institutional right. – and he's, again, another guy who says, wait, right. why do we accept the ratings – And the insurance, how do we know the insurance is still going to be there to pay? And why do we accept AAA? Uh, Listen, kid, this is how it's done. You'll learn. You'll, (laughs) right. So, O'Shaughnessy, Girton, one's looking at stocks, the other's looking at bonds. But it's the same concept of, I I don't really care what the industry says. The industry, a bunch of fat, lazy guys who charge too much in fees. Right. And uh, funny how he, I think at a certain point, a couple of big funds came to him and said, Hey, listen. We like what you have to say. We want you to run some bond money, twenty-five or thirty-five billion dollars. Later, he's uh, he's he's got a nice business, and nobody knows who the hell he is. That's right. what's so fascinating. He handles all the bonds, um, assets that for us for our for our uh, oh, high net worth clients. Yeah, and especially if you have people in New York or California, high tax states. Sure, they they specialize in that. If you're in uh, Florida or Texas, where there's no state income tax. Um, it matters a little less. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. saving, you know, you buy muni bonds, they're typically triple tax-free. If you're a New York City resident, you're not paying federal tax, you're not paying state tax, you're not paying income tax. This doesn't matter to most people. But if you have a few million dollars you're looking to generate revenue on without paying taxes, hey, it it makes a difference. So it's really for a very specific audience, which is probably why most people never heard
0: of them. Interesting, and then you've got uh, downtown Josh Brown. Uh, Josh the, is the doing reform the, broker.
1: Yep, Josh works with me. Um, probably my best hire ever. Um, he's going to be running the panel on high frequency trading, and uh, and he just released a book markets. recently. Yeah, back- his book was called Backstage Wall Street, which tells you all the horrible things the big <laughs> Wall Street firms do to their investors. You know, the the rule of thumb is. I don't want to mention any names, but let's imagine a company that rhymes with Schmerl. Um, <laughs> hmm. Their fiduciary obligation isn't to their clients. It's to their shareholders. Right. So their standard of care for the most part is suitability. Hey, don't sell Facebook IPO to great-grandma. Other than that, it's suitability. They've actually added a, a second designation. So... Our shop is an RIA. Our standard of care is fiduciary obligation. We're like doctor, lawyer, accountant to the client. We have right. that, that's supposed to be our relationship. They've actually started shifting in that degree, that direction, Morgan, Merrill. But, you know, they never do anything clean and simple. So they're both brokers and RIAs. Two hats. So, right. So if they... That if, sounds like
0: Fannie and Freddie. So they
1: pitch, exactly. They pitch the fiduciary. But... You know, if you're a fiduciary, you can't then turn around and say, "I'm taking my fiduciary hat off." Right and now, I'm a retail broker and I'm pitching you Facebook right. IPO because there's a giant fee in it. Uh, that's not in their necessarily in their best interest.
0: And then you've got uh, Sal Arnick and Joe Saluzzi. Yep, those
1: guys are from Themis Trading. They wrote the book "Broken Markets." Mm-hmm. They've been pretty uh, robust critics of high frequency
0: trading. um, Explain to my listeners what high-frequency trading is.
1: So look, everything has moved from human to computer over the years. And the computers used to, following certain algorithms, identify better or worse times to buy a specific stock in a specific amount. I don't mean 1037. I mean when there's this much stock for sale and this much buyers and trying to – so mm-hmm. what started out as a way to get better execution and better average price, people figured out, um, hey, if we could use computers to look for pricing anomalies and when things get too expensive, intraday, sell them. And when they get too cheap, intraday, buy them sure, and move a lot of money around. And uh, that was – in the beginning, it wasn't too bad. It didn't really have an impact. And then – once the exchanges, once the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and all the rest, once they shifted from a not for profit company to publicly traded for profit companies, they said, "We know how to make money. We can sell server space right next to our servers for these trading companies and let them gives them two advantages first, the elect the signal doesn't have to travel from New York to Chicago or New York to New Jersey or New York to are so talking millisecond. Millisecond. Listen, there, there's a hedge fund that is paying to lay a cable from New York to London. It's called latency. You, if yeah. you could cut 8 milliseconds off of a signal that instead of having to go up to a satellite and come down, goes through a hard wire underneath the ocean, that gives you a huge advantage, enormous advantage. And what the what the <laughs> just the idea of laying a cable. <laughs> to save eight milliseconds. Right. But OPS, oh, the cable costs um just under a billion dollars. Right. Stop and think about it. Yeah, we'll make that up in a couple of weeks, not a big right. deal. Um <laughs> and then the exchanges like the NYSE or the NASDAQ, not only do they rent them it's called co location, right. server space next to the Nasdaq server, they give them first look at orders first look at what's going on which really is not a level playing field. Sure. In other words, and the big mutual funds and pension funds they they hate this crap cuz they want to they need to buy 10 or 20 million shares, they have to they're called seeker killer bots and these there's this whole arms race to prevent people from knowing exactly what you're doing and just front running you. Now it used to be you would have to look at the price and figure out, and everybody got to see it. But these HFTs, these high-frequency trading firms, they're paying the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ to say, look, before this data goes to the public, we want to see it. We don't need to see it a week or a, a day or even a minute in advance. We just need to see it 10 milliseconds before everybody else. So they're not getting paid for executing orders. They're getting paid for selling the investor down the road. I, I, I think the... NASDAQ, the NYC, all the big exchanges are, are shameless whores who have sold the investing public down the road. And mom and pop have taken their ball and going home. Every month we read about outflows. They're not spending too much time dealing with this crap. They're basically, you know, they've going, walked they're, away.
0: Their customers, the big the big clients is where where they're where they're focused on for the future. That,
1: and not even the big pension funds and big Um, Mutual funds. It's the HFT guys, the guys who do a lot of trading, generate Mm -hmm. a lot of activity, and pay a lot of money in order to be able to sniff out people's orders before it enters the system. Uh, I think it's completely corrupt. Um, I I advocate the death penalty, but that's just me.
0: (laughs) And then you've got – uh, Scott Patterson, who wrote the Quants. Oh, I love that book. And uh, it's funny because that's next to my bed. In, oh, uh, dude, you have. And to I haven't read, read it yet. It's awesome. It, it, it's you know what it reminds me of.
1: He writes a little bit, not quite Michael Lewis, um, where right. Lewis tells a long narrative story through three or four people. He's still a journalist and tells us the whole right. story. He's a Wall Street Journal. There's reporter. twenty, thirty characters in the book. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. And then his latest book is called Dark Pools, right. which is the next step after the quants. All these crazy algorithmic tradings, all these tra- crazy things that are going on. Um, I always tell people start with the quants if you like that. You can read Dark Pools, but the quant, quants were on my list of ten best books last year. I, I, right, I, just, I loved it. I thought it was a, a just yeah. A I'll, have to, read.
0: Uh, I'll have to. I'll have to. Crack that one next. I'm,
1: I'm in halfway through. Um, we are anonymous. Yes, you re- yeah, you re- I love that book. I love that really, book. and it, it's caused me to really rethink all the Twitter followers I get. Yeah, the spam. If someone bots. follows me and it's it's you know no picture, three follows, one four followers, no tweets, block. I know right. One. Not yeah. only do I block them, but anybody following them, I block. Right. Ones. I I do
0: the same thing. They're I, I just, feel like in my own way, I'm helping. Self police the uh,
1: more people should do that,
0: yeah, for sure. Well, listen, Barry, this has been the time flies, it's been an hour. This is great stuff and uh we'll have to do you you've uh inspired me to uh get back in the saddle of podcasting again. I took a year off. Uh, uh and you've uh, been cracking the whip and telling me to get on it.
1: Your podcasts are great. You you should look, you don't have to do one every day Adam Carolla style. <laughs> um or I love WTF is my podcast. Yes, I, Mark Marin. But but you know, you do two a month and that'll keep your audience happy and and Sure. You always have interesting guests, they're always uh, fascinating, and I, it gives me access to a world that I normally don't have access to.
0: Well, that's great. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll do this again, but good luck with your conference. I'll have all the links on my site, and I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Thanks so much. That's it for this edition of the Housing Helix Podcast. As always, you can send comments and recommend guests to my email address, jmiller at millersamuel.com. This episode and the entire podcast library are available as a free subscription through iTunes and at thehousinghelix.com. So until next time, I'm Jonathan Miller, and thanks for listening to The Housing Helix Podcast.